My daughter, my daughter Haley is 30 years old. I am on. Can you hear me? Okay. I seemed louder last night. I always say to the sound people, thank you for your ministry and louder. <laughs> I have a small print Bible here today just to let you know. The one I had last night was the NES 2020, and I thought I was doing a good deed. My notes are in the English Standard Version, and so I know you have New American Standard, so I brought a New American Standard up here to quote from once in a while, but it doesn't happen to be the 1995 New American Standard that you have. It happens to be the 2020 version, and so you kept looking. When I said NAS, it says futility or vanity, but it didn't, so that's the explanation. My daughter Haley's 30 years old, and she was about two years old when I went into my study in North Hollywood, California, and I thought, well, you know what, I just finished a book, reading a book, and I'd like to read another book. What should I read? And I was perusing the shelves and looking, and there are small little paperbacks, Puritan paperbacks, that are easier to read, and I thought, you know, one of the easiest Puritans to read is a man named Thomas Watson. So if you've never read Puritans, he's the best place to start. And I thought, you know what, this will be good for me. It's a little book called All Things for Good. And it's about Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and how he works all things for good, as Pastor Pat was quoting. And I picked it up and I looked at it and I thought, if I read this, the Lord's going to make me live it out. So I put it back. <laughs> it's true. I put it back, and then I started preaching to myself, and you know, here's my typical sermon to myself, you're stupid, you're an idiot, you know better, stop trying to be some kind of weird, pagan, mystical person, so I picked it up, and I read it, and three days later, I got laid off. Thankfully, I wasn't stupid enough to say, I told you, Lord. <laughs> I thought, how am I going to provide for my wife and my children? I have a mortgage in Los Angeles, et cetera, et cetera. And this morning, I'd like to ask this question about Romans 8.28. What if it's not true? What would your life be like? What would your attitude be like? What would your future joy be like? What would your comfort in this life be like if Romans 8.28 weren't true? For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If it's not true, what's our response? Basically, we're toast. Uh, we're done. Uh, we should be depressed. We should be discouraged. But on the flip side, since it is true, how shall we live? Pastor Pat said in his last message in his first S, God is in control. And that's exactly what I want to talk about today and further flesh out the sovereignty of God in your life. Take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, please. God is sovereign. There is no chance. There is no serendipity. There is no luck. There is no kismet. God is sovereign. So much so that at Bethlehem Bible Church in Massachusetts, by the way, you're invited to attend anytime you'd like. We don't have potlucks there because that would be very, very satanic. So we have pot providences. We don't eat lucky charms, we eat providential charms. And so we have to redeem this. The Bible teaches in Isaiah 46, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God is sovereign in fact and in name. There are no chance molecules. Everything that God does, He rules over. Even the root word in sovereign, He reigns, and He reigns well and he reigns perfectly and he is the Lord of heaven and he is the Lord of earth and he is your Lord. Charles Spurgeon said to deny the divine creeds would be to predicate a world and all its concerns regulated by undesigned chance or blind fate. What a world to live in. I just hope it works out. Today we're going to look at a passage that will teach us and remind us that whatever God does he does well and he does rightly and he is sovereign with the effect that you should rest in him, trust in him, and have comfort in this fallen world. Yesterday in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, we looked at joy in a fallen world. Today we're going to look at most of Ecclesiastes 3, comfort in a fallen world. 
And I think as I listened to Pat, I thought, we need this kind of message so we don't worry, so we don't fret, so we can rest in the Lord and trust in Him. When I used to put my children down to bed, I would just rub my hand on their chest and I would sing a song, Everything's All Right in My Father's House. In me being the Father, but ultimately the Lord God, the Father. Everything's all right in my Father's house. And of course, we already know when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, there's an end. Uh, there's the book of Revelation and everything in between. And we look at Ecclesiastes as Christians. It's a Christian book. And we realize that Jesus has lived and he has died. He's entered into this fallen world, this very vain world, this futile world, this frustration world. And he has rescued us. In fact, from the meaningless life, from the frustration life, he is the one. It says in 1 Peter 1, we know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty or futile or frustrating way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with his precious blood, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And because of the resurrection, we can definitely have hope. And we come to Ecclesiastes where some think it's a very downer book and sometimes it is. But this book for many Jews was written on the equivalent of our Thanksgiving. And so many of you, when you have Thanksgiving supper, you'll get around the table and uh, at our family, the, the kids would put together little paper folder things and it would have Bible verses of Thanksgiving. And we'd go around the room, you'd read the Bible verse of Thanksgiving and then you would say what you're thankful for. You probably have traditions like that. Who would ever think that Ecclesiastes was written and, and read for Thanksgiving? I mean, it seems so pessimistic. It seems so dour. How could it be read during a joyful harvest celebration? Well, we'll find out today why that is true. Well, remember just in review, chapters 1 and 2 yesterday, basically we saw uh, the very get-go, the problem, verse 2 of chapter 1, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity and we take a look around and we say the world is fleeting the world is vain the world is perplexing and how do we live in such a world quite opposite to remember when the Lord Jesus came and he said in John 10 the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it what abundantly I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and we saw that in the middle of all this frustration and futility and desire to fill our lives, fill the voids of our lives with pleasure and possessions and music and sex and all the other things, that the only way it will ever work is found at the end of chapter 2. Remember how he ends so wonderfully? Verse 24 of chapter 2, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink. That's a, a good description in Hebrew about satisfaction and joy. And to tell himself that his labor is good this also I have seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? And on the flip side, with Him you can eat and you can have enjoyment. So that's what we looked at yesterday. Today we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And it's interesting because most of the time when we think of sovereignty, we rightly think of like Westminster confessional descriptions and definitions of sovereignty. I don't know if you've read the Westminster Confession, Confession lately or thought about a definition of sovereignty. I don't know what you might say. Maybe you'd say something like God's in charge. Uh, God determines everything. Uh, God brings whatsoever comes to pass. God is free in His will. But here in chapter 3, we're going to see a poetical way to describe sovereignty. Instead of a dogmatic, dogmatician, systematic theology like, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes, which by the way is poetry. How would a poet describe the sovereignty of God? And that's what we're going to find out in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Our outline is pretty simple. And Pat, I, I, I have alliteration. I don't know what's going on here. The reality of God's sovereignty, verses 1 through 11, and our response to the sovereignty of God Verses 12 through 15. It is true that God is sovereign and it means that if He is, how do we respond to the sovereignty of God? How do you live like Romans 8.28 is really true? The reality of God's sovereignty, in other words, you must believe it and should keep believing it. And then what, our, what are our responses? 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, God's sovereignty is his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath ordained whatsoever comes to pass. But how would Solomon describe sovereignty with poetry? How would you? Does anybody here write poetry? I don't really write much poetry. When I was in Nebraska going to school uh, as an elementary student with a good crew cut hair uh, with, with jeans on. With Remember he had school jeans and you had uh, play jeans, right? And you'd get those holes in your knee and then grandma, she darned the socks but she also put those kind of pads on top of the jeans to just keep them going. And we never could afford Levi's or Lee's. I think we had I don't know, some fake Wranglers is what we had. <laughs> Sovereignty uh, is important. And so let's take a poetical look at sovereignty. And unlike me as a kid who thought poetry was for the girls, uh, poetry is for everybody that would like to read the Bible. Kind of like bird watching. I used to think bird watching was just for old people. Any bird watchers here? Now that I'm old, I watch birds. But I should have thought to myself, Jesus said when you're anxious, what? Take a look at the birds. How foolish that crew-cutted hair um, son was in Nebraska. We are going to look at a poem about a fallen world and God sovereign over it. Verse 1, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. This is kind of his, his statement, his propositional statement. He's going to try to teach you that nothing happened haphazardly, that God is in control, there's no fate, there's no random chance. God controls everything and he controls you and he controls me. And now he's going to illustrate his thesis. If his thesis is there's an appointed time for everything under heaven, now he's going to illustrate his thesis and try to prove it. And that's in verses 2 and following. And you're going to see the word time over and over and over. You can just take a look at it. Even in your New American Standard, mine in this minuscule print Bible up here shows an indent in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way through verse 8. Is yours indented a little bit? What's the, what's the, what's the, the printer is trying to tell you? This is a poem. Right? Some of the psalms are indented because you'll say, oh, this is a song. And so let's have a little poem about God's sovereignty. With the word time over and over and over. 28 times we have the word time or more. Now, I'm going to give you some special blessing right now. We're going to learn a word about how to read the Bible, and it's a grammar word. Now, sometimes we think of similes or we think of figures of speech like, oh, analogies. Uh, I'm going to teach you a new word because that word is going to help us with Ecclesiastes 3. And it's the word merism. M-E-R-I-S-M. Who knows what a merism is? See, I get to teach you something. This is so great. And after I teach you, you're probably going to have a, an urge to raise your hand and praise to the Lord, but this is a Reformed Baptist church. So just do it in your heart. A merism is a combination of two contrasting parts which refer to the whole. What do I mean by that? You could go into your closet looking for something and you could look all around meticulously or you could say to someone, I've searched high and low to find that thing that I've lost. And high and low means I've searched not just high things and low things, but high and low and everything in between. That's a merism. I've searched high and low. God created the heavens and the earth and that's a merism meaning He created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. God knows my down-sitting and my uprising in Psalm 139. That means He knows when I sit down, when I stand up, and everything in between. That's what a merism is, and that's what we have here. A bunch of merisms. I didn't say Marianisms. Merism. And so the reason why the merism is give here, given here by Solomon is because he wants you to know Every single action, every single event, every single person, everything that happens in the universe is governed by the hand of God, the sovereign God. And that means something. Pat did a great job explaining how important sovereignty is. 
And he starts giving these merisms to teach us the sovereignty of God. If you don't want to remember merism, it doesn't matter. Just remember the thing that's stated and everything in between. So we have, we have the first one in verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. This means that God's plan encompasses our birth all the way through our death. He's sovereign over everything. Not just when we were born, but how we'll die. And you can look up scriptures to see how sovereign God is for even our death, our actions, going back to our lives. I sometimes am surprised in life by something I might do, by something else someone else might do. But is God ever surprised? That's a good question. He's ever taken aback. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that. I, I looked down the corridor of time and I saw something I didn't know and now I know and now I'll act. No, God is completely sovereign. And I love the way this poem works. It's just kind of like back and forth and you can feel its intensity and you can feel where it's driving and it's driving to your heart saying, God has to be sovereign. How am I going to live in a fallen world under the sun if God isn't sovereign? I guess striving after wind is my only hope. That's as good as it gets. Birth and death are not accidents. They are divine appointments. And while we might say, I wish I would have taken Grandpa in for that heart surgery, or we could have only been to that one doctor overseas that has that alternative treatment, and if we could have done this or that, and by the way, human responsibility is good and important even for our health, but ultimately the day we were born is decreed by God, and the day we'll die is decreed by God. You can't outlive God's decree. And if there's... Uh, SWAT team of 10,000 SWAT team people trying to protect you, you will still die the day you're supposed to die. And so God wants us to know that He is sovereign, that the King of the universe does whatever He pleases, and our days are determined. The number of months is with you, God, and your limits have you have set that you, we cannot pass, Job 14. I want you to exercise. I want you to be encouraged to do things like that and take vitamins, but we can't outlive our death day. Well, you know what else he does? There's not just a time to be born and a time to die. God's sovereign over the plant world. Oh, this is interesting. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Did you know even the life of vegetables and fruit is under the umbrella of God's sovereignty? That's amazing. There's a time to plant in the spring. There's a time to pluck up at the harvest. That's all under God's sovereign control. And by the way, if you were Jewish and you lived 2,000 years ago and you were thinking, you know what, we don't have special fertilizers. We don't have this. We don't have that. We don't have ConAgri. We don't have all these other things. You were at the mercy of the sovereignty of God for rain. Right? Even the Scriptures, I don't think the Scriptures ever say it rained. The Scriptures say God sent rain. Pat, John, and I were talking about the other day with Deb at least for me, one of the, the ways I complain against God's sovereignty the most is against His weather. God sent this weather today. This is God's weather He sent. Praise the Lord. Do you have an umbrella? Here's another merism, verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. This is not the word for murder. This is capital punishment. There's a time to kill someone who's taken another life. There's a time to kill when there's a just war and you're defending your country. Killing is involved under God's sovereignty. There's a time to kill when you're defending someone who's attacking your wife. There is a time to kill. And there's a time to heal. There's a time, verse 3, to break down, to tear down, and a time to build up. There's a time to go into a temple and destroy the false idols. And there's a time to, to build the temple for God. So what he's trying to do is he's giving illustrations that everyone back in those days would know, saying God is sovereign over everything. Back to chapter 3, verse 1, there's an appointed time for everything. Like what? Birth, death, life, plants, agriculture. Even our emotions. Take a look, verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh. There are time for tears and there are time for laughter. God's sovereign over it all. Verse 4, there's a time to mourn, funerals, and a time to dance. Someone dies, we mourn. The Ark of the Covenant comes back and we dance. In our house, the time to dance is Thursday night at 7 p.m. Because that's when I take my wife ballroom dancing. I don't do it well, but I could do a little foxtrot, a little waltz. I can do a little uh, swing 
I've occasionally done a T-A-N-G slow tango, but there's a time for everything God's sovereign over it all. So if you don't like it that the pastor dances, God's sovereign over my dancing. Actually, one of the things Kim and I love to do as we all have marriage trouble, uh, instead of sitting down talking, talking, talking with other couples about marriage problems, we say, you know what, let's not talk tonight for counseling. Let's go dancing. And uh, you get to hold your wife and you get to do something together and you don't really do it that well, but you're learning together and it's a nice little date, so why don't you come out and go dancing with us? Okay. <laughs> I'm just taking a look to see if I see any inner fundamentalism here. <laughs> Dancing. Verse 5. So, Solomon is trying to just show you God's sovereign over everything. And it makes sense because in chapters 1 and 2, there's this desire for satisfaction in things and in people, and it doesn't happen. Ultimate desire is found in God. And who is this God that gives us sovereign gifts? That's answered in chapter 3, verse 5. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather up stones. Like, what is going on with that? I don't know about Ohio, but I do know about New England. And New England, in our fields, we have tons of stones. By the way, it's hard if you want to grow corn. I've detasseled corn in my life. It's hard if you want to grow beans, and I've cut a lot of uh, weeds out of bean fields when I worked on the farm every summer for many years. Did you know if you want to ruin someone's field, what do you do? Well, you could salt it, but if you didn't have a lot of salt because salt was precious, you throw stones in their field. Listen to 2 Kings 3. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. It's been said that when God created the world, he said to the angels, uh, here's a bunch of stones and rocks, and I want you to distribute them equally across the world. And the angels tripped in Israel, and they all fell down in Israel. I don't believe that, because some of them fell in New England. Listen, in 1871, the U.S. Department of Agriculture published statistics of fences in the United States. At that time, it noted that in New England, there were 252 100,000 miles of stone walls, enough to circle the globe 10 times and to build all the pyramids of Egypt times 100. It's been calculated that such an effort would require an army of 15,000 workers 243 years to accomplish. What took them by surprise was that as fast as they removed rocks and stones from the field, more kept coming to the surface, right? Because it would freeze and push these rocks, especially in New England, up. And so it's been said by some, when life gives you stones, you build a wall. So if you come to New England, you'll see wall after wall, fence after fence made out of rocks. Not because they were trying to protect their property, they were trying to get the rocks out of the field so they could grow things. Verse 5, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. You can imagine how people would greet each other back in the old days and some do now, too, in different countries. I, I can never remember, okay, I'm greeting an Italian. Do I kiss on the left cheek and then the right cheek? Or is it the Middle East, left, right, left? Is it Greece? Is it, le uh, is it American? Is it the American-German? Don't touch me. Don't get close to me. Don't kiss me. I'm sure my wife or children. There's a time to show affections, open affections to greet a friend. In marital beds, there's a time to show affection and there's a time not to. One person said, there's a time to embrace on your wedding night and a right time to refrain from embracing, i.e. a person with leprosy. <laughs> That's the right time not to do it. <laughs> Solomon is just trying to say God's sovereign over everything. He's writing a poem. There's a time to seek, verse 6, and a time to lose. This is talking about economics. Gaining and giving away. There's a time to keep and a time to cast away. Got to keep grain. Remember Joseph knew ahead of time that there was going to be a famine, so he kept the grain. And there's a time to cast away. As some say, Jonah's going overboard. There's a time to tear, verse 7, and a time to sow. 
When I tell you you'd tear your clothes back in those days, you would know, right? If you know your Bible, that when you're grieving, you tear your clothes. And after your grieving period was over, you'd sew it back up again. There's a time to be silent. There's a time to speak. There's a time where a word is fitly spoken like apples of gold in the setting of silver, and there's time not to say anything. Matter of fact, in verse 8, there's a time to love and there's a time to hate. So how could I ever hate? Well, there's righteous indignation, is there not? There are six things the Lord hates. Yes, even seven. Is it good to hate what God hates? Yes. Slander and lying and all that. There's a time even for war, verse 8, and a time for peace. There's a time where those walls come tumbling down of Jericho, and there's a time for peace, including peace with God through the man Christ Jesus. I know what you're thinking because you're a pagan like I am in many areas, and we talked about secular songs last night. Does anybody know who wrote a song about Ecclesiastes 3? The birds. See, you all know, and you even know how to misspell that name, birds, don't you? 1965, hippie song from Ecclesiastes 3. What they did, though, is they took these words, but they added a few to make it an anti-Vietnam song. They added the words, I swear it's not too late. Added a few songs to Ecclesiastes to turn it into anti-Vietnam pro-peace song. If I think about the Lord Jesus through the lens of these verses... Even his public ministry was pronounced with these words. The time is fulfilled. I wonder, did Jesus know when the time to heal was and when the time wasn't to heal? Was there a time to be angry and hate as he drives out the money lenders? Is there a time to mourn for a Lazarus tomb, a man of sorrows? Is there a time to, to rejoice? Is it time to talk? Jesus did a lot of talking in his life, but when he was before some of the corrupt rulers, he kept silent like a lamb to the slaughter. Did, in fact, Jesus not know that there was a right time for everything, including the sovereign control of God over all things? Of course. Everything has a time. God is sovereign. The writer wants you to embrace the sovereignty of God of your life, even if you can't see it. I thought Pat did a good job and I'm sure you've been taught by your pastor. We know it's true, but sometimes when we look at the world, we just can't see that it's true. So what do we have to do? In our family, lots of times my children will say, Dad, I feel this, I feel this, I feel that. And they really mean I think. I think this. And so I say to my children, do you, are you thinking this or feeling this? Well I, well, I think. So somebody will say to me, what do you feel about Jesus calling the book? Well, I feel like I want to throw up. Uh, what do I think about it? I think it's extra biblical revelation, and she says she's hearing from God, and that God sounds a lot like a 47-year-old divorcee. So while I sometimes don't feel like God's sovereign, I have to think that He is. You lose a loved one. Luke was born 26 years ago. 10 days in the NICU. My grandson just was born six months ago. 10 days in the NICU. What's the pillow that you lay your head on at night thinking, you know what, how am I going to get through this? And if they don't make it, then what? Of course, God is good. God is kind. God is faithful. But this is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. He rules and reigns over everything. There's no way to live this world in this world unless you believe that. What if you see things only from a human perspective? Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toll? Toil, rather, excuse me. That would be bad to just go back to that kind of thinking. But the better thinking is verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything, what? Beautiful. You could even translate that as handsome appropriate. Everything's appropriate in its time. Pat did a good job on already not yet, so sometimes it's not right now, but it ultimately will be. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart so that he yet not cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. There's an appointed time for everything. God, I don't see it. Well, then look at the Scriptures and see it there. I look at the world. I don't see God's making everything beautiful. It seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. 
Have you ever been to California and they have the burger place called In-N-Out Burger? Anybody here been to In-N-Out Burger? A few have. And on the bottom of the French fries, the, the um, malts and shakes and hamburger things, they, they have Bible verses. And they have John 3.16 underneath there. Not the whole verse, but just the reference. And they have something from Proverbs. And then they also have another verse from Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. When I first memorized it, I thought, this is kind of like for new Christians. This is something that everybody has to memorize. John 3.16, John 5.8, Genesis 1.1. But as I get older and have to go through more trials, to trust in the Lord with all your heart. What's the next line? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And he'll make your path straight. That's what he's teaching right here. Just, but it's poetry. Everything is going according to God's plan. So seize it. So believe it. So welcome it. And it's interesting too, he's put eternity in their hearts. Why, when you go to Egypt and see those tombs, even in unbelievers, they know, they long for, there's something more than this world. Augustine said, you've made us for yourselves, for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find peace in you. I want you to just take the sovereignty of God and embrace it. I think this is really the second blessing. Not speaking in tongues. Pat knows the story. I started studying the Bible. I was a brand new Christian, and I thought, you know, uh, I was working in the operating room as a sales rep, and I'd get home at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because I started my day so early, and Kim wouldn't get home till 5 or something. We didn't have children, and I would go to the gym, and I would start reading the Bible over and over and over and over. Reading the Bible, I'm thinking, I can't believe I so neglected the Bible as an unbeliever. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. I want to know what's in there. What's God thinking? What's he want me to know about? And so it started talking about groanings too deep for words. And I was taught by my charismatic pastor that if you want the second blessing and you want to speak in tongues, you ought to groan. So, okay, God said it. Laid on my bed. Made sure Kim wasn't home. Oh. Oh. I'm like, okay, just get it going. I felt like I was trying to ride my Honda motorcycle. I just couldn't. There's no gas in it. Oh! I had a dog named Marley, after Bob Marley, of course. And so she thought something was wrong with her master. So she comes up and she starts licking me like, you okay, you okay, you okay? And I thought, Satan's trying to use my dog to get me to not speak in tongues. I said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. I'm not kidding. This is, none of this is made up. She could tell my voice, and so she goes down to the end of the bed and lays down. And then I thought, you know what? This is dumb. Why am I trying to speak in tongues when I can cast demons out of dogs? That's a much higher calling. That was the last time I tried to speak in tongues. It really, truly is a so-called second blessing when you could submit your life and heart your spouse and your children and your grandchildren and your job and your health and everything else to God's sovereign plan. What's the, what's, what's, what's the alternative? God isn't sovereign. He's kind of sovereign. He's only sovereign over good things. Did you know God's sovereign even over sin? The worst sin that's ever been committed in the universe was the death of the innocent, blameless, spotless Lord Jesus. And Acts 2 and Acts 4 say both of those things are under the sovereign, determined plan of God. And we're to rest. Do we know every detail about everything? No. But we take God at his word. Little Corey Ten Boom, of course, grew up and suffered through the uh, concentration camps and made it out alive. And she told the story about her father, who also was in the concentration camp but died. And when she was little, she was on the train with her father, who was a watchmaker, and he had a big bag of tools to do all this fixing of the people's watches and clocks. And they were sitting there and Corey Ten Boom was reading a newspaper and she said something, she saw something that was called sex sin. It's in the newspaper. She said, Daddy, what's a sex sin? Her dad never answered the question. 
when they arrived at their destination, he said, Corey, pick up my, my uh, luggage, pick up my, my big case of tools and carry it with me outside the train. And she tried to pick it up and she said, Daddy, it's too heavy. And he said, Corey, that's just like sex sin. It's too heavy for you right now and I'll tell you when you're able to handle it. If we really did know all the details about our life and what's going to happen and how we're going to die and everything else, it's just too much for us. It's enough to just say, my dad told me it was going to be okay, and I'll tell you when you can handle it, and we'll just leave it to him. Isn't that good? I don't even need to know all that. I just need to know God's sovereign, and we can rest in him. And that book, Trusting God, you ought to read that book, either the 31-day devotional or the other one, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. Especially, by the way, congregation, give that book to someone who doesn't know about Calvinism and all these other isms, and they're afraid of the Reformed doctrine. It's a gentle, easy way to teach these truths God is sovereign. It really is the second blessing. How can we understand the mystery of sovereignty? Only by what he's revealed to us, and that's it. So how should we respond? God is sovereign. That's what he's been trying to say. There's three responses to the sovereignty of God. And those responses are enjoy God's gifts, do good, and fear God. That's what is in this next section. Let's look at the first one. Enjoy these gifts. Reminds me of chapter 1 and 2. I perceive, verse 12, that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live, and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. Let's focus on verse 12, that part that says, and to be joyful. Let's see what the NAS says in verse 12. And to rejoice. What's the response to the sovereignty of God? Sometimes people will say, even in the sovereignty of God in salvation, i.e. predestination, it makes them mad. Should you be mad that God predestines people? By the way, remember in Ephesians chapter 1, God is to be praised. Paul the apostle praises God in this apostolic way. He doesn't say praise like this, but that's what he means. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Right? And he goes on to talk about just as he chose us in him to be holy and blameless before in him in love, he predestined us. When we think of the sovereignty of God even in predestination, it's supposed to make us praise him. Not to be angry. If you're angry that God predestines people, you're sinning. We're supposed to be thankful. God praises uh, uh, Paul praises God for predestination before he praises God for dying on the cross, the son dying on the cross. What's the response to God's sovereignty? Uh, to praise him. It's easy for us to say God's sovereign over my parents, God's sovereign over where I was born, what country I was born, what my genetics were like, sovereign over circumstances in the world. But when push comes to shove, is God sovereign over who goes to heaven and who doesn't? We all deserve hell. Who goes to heaven and who doesn't? Is God sovereign over that? The answer is yes. And your response to the sovereignty of God should be, besides rest, besides comfort, is joy. Rejoicing. God is sovereign. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. I love when Jesus said in Matthew 11, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The sovereignty of God is even if you know Jesus, it's because it's been revealed to you. Then He says right after the sovereignty of God statement, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. It's supposed to evoke in us and promote in us, not angst, not how could this be. You mean to tell me that my grandma that didn't believe isn't predestined, and all these other things that go through our mind. We're supposed to rejoice and we're supposed to rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm sure you, congregation, rejoice in God's sovereignty. But not only that, what's our another response? found here right in our verses, to do good. Hey, God's sovereign. He does whatever He wants. I don't have to do anything. Is that a good response? You know what, God? He, he's going to save whoever He wants to save, so I don't have to evangelize. Why pray? His will be done anyway, because He's sovereign over everything. Why do anything? Because God's sovereign, and I'm just going to lay back and let God. 
What does he say here? God's sovereign. So rejoice. And what's he also say? So do good. Does God need your good works? No. Who does? Your neighbor, as Luther would say. And so since God is sovereign, he's still reminding us that there's a responsibility. Right? We have the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. And one man said it's kind of like this. Uh, imagine there's a huge pulley wheel up in heaven. And there's a rope that goes over it. You can't see the pulley, but there's this rope that goes over it. And the rope comes all the way down. And if you grab with both hands this side of the rope of sovereignty, you just kind of like fall down. And if you grab human responsibility, free agency, and you grab that, you just kind of fall down. So what do we have to do since both are taught in Scripture? 3, 1 to 8, sovereignty, I grab it by faith. 12 and 13, 14, 15, do good, I grab it, and I hold on to both of those because both are true. You say, how could both be true? It's like two parallel lines that keep going, and I've been taught in geometry class that unlike a, I don't know, what's, a, what's an object in geometry? A rhombus. Remember rhombuses? Our plural rhombuses, rhombi? That's another story. Parallel, I can't, they, they don't meet. There's so many things in Scripture that we don't know. We don't even know about the incarnation. Great is the mystery of, an, of the incarnation in, in first, uh, first Timothy chapter 3. We are, I'm, I'm finite, I'm sinful, and these things that I don't understand, I don't even understand the sovereignty of God, are going to drive me to despair or is it going to drive me to worship? God, you're great and I don't even know. How can I even think about who you are? God, as it were, when he talks through Scripture, Calvin said, even this is like baby talk. You ever talk to your six-month-old grandson, one-year-old grandson? And, and even grown men with Esquire at the end of their names get down there and do the, the gaga, dada, mama, all that kind of stuff. That's how this is written. So I just embrace it and think God is great. God is immutable. God is of himself. God is all these things. I don't want to respond with, well, you know what? I don't understand, and since God's sovereign, why do anything? I grab a hold of both. God's sovereign, and I want to do good. I want to live a holy life. If you understand sovereignty, you should try to live a holy life. Not to gain God's favor. You're favored in Christ Jesus, but you're to do good. Those that understand sovereignty do good. You're like, how could that affect God's plan? Well, part of His plan is for you to do good. We don't lay back and let God. We want to do things according to what he says. And he says right here, to do good. Well, what else does he say? Well, he says to fear God. Uh Uh-oh, fear God. True or false? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True. I wonder what he says about fear here. Verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it. See, he's sovereign. He has the last word. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you fear God? Now, if I just think about my parents, and since Pat's here, I think about my dad, 6'4", 240, boxer, Korean War vet. I feared him. But what kind of fear? Well, one of the fears was there were three of us, Pat, Marcy, and Mike, and we would try to get in the car, and we would always say, I call the back seat behind Dad. Why? Because it's hard to hit the kid back there. (laughs) So instead of hitting us sometimes, he would just grab our hair and pull. And then all the way up to Gavin's Point Dam to our little cabin, it would be like this. That's why I'm bald and Pat has hair. You know, you don't really spank the youngest kid. The first one gets all. I have four children. I always say, I, I overspank the first, underspank the second, spank the third just right, fourth one, spanking? <laughs> what do you mean, fear? I thought perfect love casts out fear. I thought because of the Lord Jesus who lived the perfect life that I was supposed to live, that Adam should have lived, that when I trust in him by simple faith alone, knowledge is sent and trust, resting and receiving, I thought I get all Jesus' righteousness and he gets all my sin 
And there's never going to be a day, a judgment day, a condemnation day, a final judgment for the Christian because that judgment took place at Calvary. How am I going to be afraid? Am I going to be afraid of judgment day? I ask you, Christian. One day you'll die and stand before God. It's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Will you make it? How's your holy living? See, what I just said is all wrong. Well, the verses weren't wrong. So what's the fear? If I'm not to fear God because I stand in Christ Jesus, I stand not condemned. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I already know what the courtroom verdict is going to be in heaven because it's been pushed into time now. The verdict is, even though Mike Abendroth is a sinner, it's, I'm not guilty. Because Jesus did pay it all. So what in the world must this be? A cringing fear? I want to sit in the back seat? How does this work? What is the fear of the Lord? And I'm telling you, one of the, the moments in my life where it was, I guess I'll call this the third blessing, when I understood fear. There's two kinds of fear. One is a servile fear for the unbeliever. He or she should be afraid of God and tremble. God is so holy, 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 holy. They should be afraid of judgment day and that should drive them to the Lord Jesus, the one who can forgive their sins. And so for them, the fear of the Lord is I understand who God is. He's created me and he's my judge. And I will be judged for everything I've ever said or done on this earth for not loving God, for not loving neighbor. I have a judge and I'm going to be guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there should be that real cringing fear, like I'm afraid, like the bristles of my hair go on the back of my neck go up. But what if you're a Christian? Is that how you're supposed to think about your father? Of course not. So your relationship to the father changes everything. Is he a creator, judge, afraid, servile fear, or are you a son or daughter? We call that a filial fear. Filial just means son. And so if you've got a great father on earth, should you fear him? The answer is yes. How do you fear him? My dad is so great. He so provides for me. He so protects me. He so loves mom. He's such a great father. I want to honor him. I want to revere him. I want to give him adoration. And he is awesome. And I'm in awe of my father for all the things that he has done. I'm not afraid that if I do something wrong, he kicks me out of the family. I mean, one of the things I got in trouble for, I never told this probably to Pat, I was supposed to be home one night, and I was supposed to be home at 1 a.m. or something, and I had my car, and I was 16 probably, and I had a, a 1967 Nova 2, a two-door, and I was supposed to be home at 1, and it was like 2.30 or something, and so I come around the little bend of the cul-de-sac, and I thought, I don't want to drive the car up into the driveway, so I'm just going to put it in neutral, turn the key off, and coast in. thought I'm pretty smart. My bedroom was in the basement. I'm walking in. I made it. I made it. I heard the basement door open up. We'll talk to you about this in the morning. <sighs> Why don't you just give me a spanking now while I'm drunk? Come on. <laughs> they didn't kick me out of the family. I got disciplined, but I didn't get kicked out. Christian, don't be afraid of God's judgment. You're a son or your daughter. And the Spirit has even taught you to cry out, I what, Abba, Father. Will you be chastened? Yes, but never ultimately punished. God has been so good to you in creating you and sustaining you and saving you that wouldn't you like to make your father look good by honoring him and obeying him and living a holy life out of gratitude? That's what it means to fear God. It has everything to do with your relationship to God. And you think, you know what? That helps with the last point of doing good. How can I do good for God when even my best deeds are tainted? I don't even have good motives when I serve other people. Maybe my motives today for preaching are bad. I just want to look good. I want you to think I'm a great preacher. That's my motive today. What if that was true? What if it's partially true? What if it's true at, at, at all? How would God ever accept my good works? 
Well, knowing the fear of God helps. So sometimes people will, will draw my picture. Children will draw my picture when I'm preaching, and they always have the pulpit stand up here in the pulpit and everything else, and, and they'll draw me a picture. And, and they come and give it to me afterwards. Pastor, here's the picture I drew when you were preaching. And I take a look at it. Man, it's awful. I'm way better looking than that. Although I'm fatter than that stick figure that they made. I'm thinking, this is awful. This is gross. I just take it from the child and I rip it up. What, I don't do that, do I? I say, oh, thank you. Come into my study. Let's get some tape out and I'm going to put it up on my door. And the reason why I accept their weak drawing is because I accept them. I've used the illustration before. Kim and I sometimes watch MasterChef. And you know, Gordon Ramsay, the key guy, he's pretty ornery sometimes. And you know, he'll take a, a bagel and cut it in half of a, a contestant that made something stupid and he'll put it on their head and say, what am I? And you're a, you're a stupid sandwich bagel or something. You know, it's just all the... So what if somebody makes him a cake? It's got too much salt. doesn't have enough sugar. Way too much red dye too or something else. And... And they give it to him. If he's the judge, he says, you're an idiot sandwich. But what if it's his five-year-old daughter that made it for him on his birthday? Thank you, daughter. It all depends on your relationship to the lawgiver. So, dear Christian, every time you read Fear of the Lord in Proverbs 1 and Ecclesiastes 12, the conclusion after all has been said and done is what? Fear God and keep His commandments. Don't have the servile fear because that ignores the work of Christ. Instead, saying, I have such a great Father who would love me in eternity past and send the Son to die for me and have the Spirit of God apply salvation to my life. He is so great to me and for me that I will gladly want to honor Him and obey Him and to make Him look good for His honor and for my good. That's what the fear of the Lord means for you. I count you as free. I pronounce free, by, by, based on the authority of Scripture, stop cringing before God and trying to sit in the back seat so He doesn't hit you every time you sin. Should that motivate you to sin? No. It should motivate you to live a holy life. God is sovereign. We've seen it in poetry today. And what's the response to God's sovereignty? Joy, rejoicing, doing good, and fearing God because He's so great. That's your only comfort in this life and death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We praise you. Thank you for being such a great father to us. There's nothing better for us to eat and drink and tell ourselves that our labor is good because it is from your hand. And with you, we can eat and drink and have enjoyment because you're sovereign. Amen.